All right. Uh, I guess we should move on to the interview now. Last year, El Salvador became the first country to make Bitcoin legal tender in a move that drew attention from all over the world, particularly from insufferable cryptocurrency dipshits, though Salvadorans themselves weren't impressed. Many protested the Bitcoin law in the streets of San Salvador, and polling has shown some two-thirds of the country is opposed to making vendors accept the cryptocurrency. Despite this, President Nayib Bukele, the driving force behind the Bitcoin initiative, still appears to be wildly popular per public opinion polling, though that could change soon if warnings from institutions overseeing global financial markets are to be believed. Helping us make sense of El Salvador's Bitcoin law is Hillary Goodfriend, a doctoral student in Latin American studies at the National Autonomous University of Mexico in Mexico City, which is known by its Spanish acronym as UNAM. You can find Hillary's writing on El Salvador, imperialism, migration, and labor in NACLA and in Jacobin, both in English and Spanish. So there was a video of uh, something that happened in El Salvador that went viral in November. Uh, Basically, it showed some American guy. He might have been Canadian. He was probably American. Uh, he, he was buying a beer in Bitcoin, and that got me wondering, and I'm sure a lot of other people wondering, how common is it for Salvadorans to buy things in Bitcoin? Um, you have officials in the Salvadoran government claim that 4 million people are using Bitcoin. Is that true? Yeah, um, I I can say uh, from anecdotal experience uh, that I've literally never seen anyone make a purchase in Bitcoin in El Salvador. And I, I, I do spend a lot of time there. Um, beyond that, recent polls have come out um, indicating that, you know, since the law was implemented in September through to the end of the year, a huge chunk of the population still doesn't know what Bitcoin is. Uh, I think it's pretty clear at this point that um, most of the uh, activity on the government's uh, Chivo wallet has been uh, people withdrawing their uh, $30 in Bitcoin, converting it into US dollars. Um, and I think I think that's a, a lot of what we've seen of the traffic on that. Um, on, and that wallet, I, I also think that the government's numbers are definitely dubious because there's been a huge amount of identity theft as well within the Chivo wallet system. So like if you talk to like a random smattering of Salvadorans, I think a handful of them can definitely say that um, by the time that they logged in to try and claim their $30 worth of Bitcoin, they received a message that somebody with their uh, national ID number had already done so. Wow. Well, the the, the vast majority of people who even know what Bitcoin is would never dare use it to purchase a beer, given that given they're all they're all speculating on it and hoping it it goes up. I mean, I guess maybe if someone assumes it's going to go down, I don't know. But like you 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 buy a beer with it and then it goes up, or you're assuming it's going to keep going up if you have that that Bitcoin hustle mentality. You're like, oh shit, I just lost all this money by giving it to the beer vendor. Yeah, it's it's madness. I mean, I think the consensus at this point is that. Um... Cryptocurrencies, so-called, are our digital assets, right? They're not currencies in the sense that you would use them uh, as a medium of exchange, right? Um, and the yeah, I, I think uh, the there was never really um, 
I don't think that there was ever really a, an intent on the part of the government that people would be making daily purchases in Bitcoin. I think at the most, there was the hope that uh, folks would be using the wallet to send remittances in Bitcoin, perhaps, and that that would be a way in which um, everyday Salvadorans might make use of the of the tech. So just to sort of make things clear, when the government, um, when, when the Bitcoin law came into effect, the government um, created these digital wallets called Chivo to sort of um, to, to help people use Bitcoin and to incentivize the use of Chivo and of Bitcoin, they gave everyone $30 in free Bitcoin um, that they could access, as you said, with their ID number um, uh, d d to get their wallet. And that's where they get the 4 million people from. And then on top of that, the Chivo wallet is just like riddled with problems. It seems like there are... Uh, news stories every other week or people complaining on social media about how the Chivo wallet is just um, completely vulnerable to hacks and, and, and to bugs and other things. Right. I mean, to be clear, it's not free Bitcoin. The money's coming from somewhere. Um, and, and that's also a huge concern because it's really not clear where the government is uh, finding the, the funds to purchase Bitcoin. There's with absolutely no account of how much Bitcoin uh, the government actually holds. It's not clear who holds it. Like, is it the president that's making these purchases? Like who has, who's in control, right, of these accounts? Um, and, and yeah, certainly the, the government's numbers are totally suspect at this point because there's absolutely no transparency. And the, the government is claiming that this is, uh, you know, this pivot to Bitcoin, this newfound national obsession with cryptocurrency is making the country uh, a darling for investors. Uh, Finance Minister Alejandro Zelaya just said last week that El Salvador's turn to crypto is attracting foreign capital. Um, the sort of overseers of foreign capital seem to think otherwise. Two weeks ago, the IMF urged El Salvador to scale back its Bitcoin exposure, calling it a risk to the economy. Credit ratings agencies keep downgrading El Salvador's debt, saying that President Nayib Bukele's obsession with crypto is making the country increasingly unreliable, financially speaking. Are Salvadorans worried about this, like what capital markets are saying? Or does this actually make Bukele more popular? Because I would imagine that some people, you know, they don't care so much what the IMF has to say. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly the vast majority of the population has little love for the IMF. I mean, countries like El Salvador have been victimized by the IMF over the course of decades, right? Um, and, I, and I think that there's there's something of an apparent contradiction, right, in, in Bukele's uh, posturing as sort of like, this turn to crypto is a sort of like anti-hegemonic move that that's sort of like a pivot that um, could somehow de-link to use like a Samiramin phrase, uh, you know, El Salvador from like the US dominated like global financial economy. Um, but I think it's pretty clear to anybody who has a limited understanding of what Bitcoin is, which is not the case of a lot of people in El Salvador, to be fair. Um, but it is pretty clear that Bitcoin does not represent in any way um, uh, a, a means of achieving greater independence financially and, and monetarily speaking. I mean, El Salvador has been dollarized since 2001. That means that they literally don't have their own currency. So they already have no means of controlling or regulating their own 
um, monetary markets, turning to Bitcoin is just um, further relinquishing any, any kind of possible state control over these kinds of markets, right? Um, and, and just further sort of subordinating the country to these external um, speculative pressures, right? Um, I think that definitely, you know, Bukele in trying to, to turn this into some sort of uh, counter hegemonic move um, might be courting the sympathies of, of certain sectors. But I, I also think that people in the country are, are genuinely worried about the state of the country's economy. El Salvador's national debt is uh, equivalent to about 100% of its GDP at this point. Uh, and, and this next year, 2023, they have like $800 million in loans coming up that need to be paid. Um, so the country's desperate for financing, which is why Bukele had been trying to close this loan with the IMF, $1.4 billion loan. Um, and it's not just the Bitcoin that's been uh, sort of throwing a, a stick in the in the spokes of all of these negotiations, it's also just the general instability and authoritarian turn of the of the government that has uh, jeopardized right this this lending. And so you know now he's talking about putting out you know an equivalent uh, you know 1.4 billion dollars in Bitcoin bonds, right? But but in the meantime, uh, for folks in El Salvador, the economic crunch has gotten really extreme. You know, day-to-day uh, -day prices are super high. Um, and if anything, the Bitcoin, uh, the Bitcoin gamble is really only uh, exacerbating this because it's uh, driving up uh, the real estate market enormously because there's more speculation, especially around the coast uh, from foreign investors to try and invest in, in tourism infrastructure. Um, so I, I definitely think that the day-to-day -day impact for most people has been negligible at best and, and maybe negative. I just feel incredibly sorry for all the Salvadorans who now have to deal with an influx of like tech investor, insufferable tech types, insufferable cryptocurrency people. It's yes. it's awful. And obviously El Salvador is already one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere. So it it is really tragic. I mean, I know that some of this is like comic in how farcical it is, but it's it's really sad. Absolutely. It's it's very silly. Like it just it's it seems absurd, um, but the the long term potential consequences for people it, it could be extremely bad. So uh, when, you, when you when you say absurd, that's what I think of when I see Bukele's tweets about Bitcoin and stuff. And Sam and I were just talking before before we came on here. You know, the Super Bowl is Sunday, and one thing we didn't anticipate, or he did, but I didn't, is how many crypto ads that are going to be just inundating the airwaves. <laughs> Um, and we see the celebrities tweeting about NFTs. It's like everybody's running a game here. Everybody's part of the pump here. And I just do we know anything about Bukele's personal holdings in digital currencies? No. And that's I think that's really key. I mean, one of the big questions when they unveiled this whole Bitcoin project in June was why? Like what what could a country possibly stand to gain from making Bitcoin legal tender, right? It, it's one thing to, to try and attract crypto investment, right? Plenty of countries are, are trying to do that. Um, and, and, you know, you can debate the merits of that as a development strategy for sure. But why on earth would you want to make something like Bitcoin, which clearly doesn't function as money um, in, in a you know day-to-day -day sense? Why would you want to make it legal tender? And, and certainly part of that uh, is, 
it's very likely that Bukele and his uh, inner circle, especially his brothers who were sort of key, a couple of his brothers who were key on negotiating this whole Bitcoin thing, uh, they must have, have had considerable prior investment. How do you sort of, like taking a step back and taking a broader view of Salvadoran politics, how do you explain the rise of Nayib Bukele and his popularity? Like, how did we get here? It sort of seems like, you know, his his charisma on social media plays a role. Um, you you mentioned that he has been critical of, of U.S. hegemony and that it seems like, you know, whereas anti-Americanism tends to be something that um, the left in Latin America tends to sort of embrace more that he has sort of made uh, uh, he's sort of made hay out of this quite successfully. How, how do you explain his popularity? Because to people outside of the, the country, it, you know, at least those who aren't involved in cryptocurrency, it's it's all just really confounding. Yeah, well, to be fair, Bukele was the U.S.'s best friend while Trump was in office. He made a, a real concerted effort to court the Trump administration and, and was very successful at that. Um, and it's been really the, the turn uh, with the Biden administration that mm. he's sort of pivoted to, to the pseudo anti-imperialism. Um, but Bukele's trajectory, I think, is it, it's illustrative of the sort of general crisis in El Salvador and its post-war. You know, El Salvador was, um, was the site of a, a really bloody um, civil war, right, for 12 years that ended in 1992 between um, leftist uh, guerrilla insurgencies, the FMLN, and the U.S.-backed military dictatorship. And, uh, you know, the sort of post-war consensus, the negotiations that ended that conflict uh, allowed for the sort of establishment of a, a delicate, a very fragile, like neoliberal democracy, right, um, with all of that that means, you know, allowing the insurgents to participate in political life without being, you know, executed. Um, allowing for certain like civil society and social movement organizing to a certain degree, but also, you know, massive structural adjustment, like free market uh, restructuring. Um, and the in, in 19 or in 2009, rather, the leftist party of the former guerrillas actually won the presidency. Um, and it was that um, the FMLN in power that was sort of this first, I think, uh, attempt to break with this neoliberal post-war um, model that had really been failing so many people. You know, we see this massive migration to the States. El Salvador becomes structurally dependent on money being sent back from migrants in the US. Um, and the FMLN uh, was in power for, for uh, over the course of two terms, they were in power for 10 years. And, and it was actually the FMLN who first gave Bukele a platform. Bukele um, ran as an FMLN mayor and actually came to govern the capital city of San Salvador in 2015. And so that's how he really got his start. Um, he came from a, a super wealthy um, Palestinian family um, and his father was, was a big uh, supporter of the FMLN. And so that's kind of how Bukele turned to politics and he gets expelled from the FMLN in 2017 uh, and decides to make a run for the presidency with uh, a, a small conservative party after failing to get his, his own party off the ground in time for the elections. Uh, anyway, that is to say that like over the course of the left's uh, two terms in power, uh, we saw them come up against a lot of structural limits to what the left can do and also a lot of uh, internal you know, shortcomings and failings in terms of really achieving the, the transformative change that people were expecting you know, um, with this sort of big, huge rupture from the post-war neoliberal order. 
Um, and so on the basis of those disappointments, Bukele was able to sort of like cast himself as this political outsider, which is certainly not, you know, he comes, he comes um, directly out of this political establishment, if you will, um, and, and turn himself into this sort of like irreverent, youthful, charismatic, like change maker, um, you know, disruptor or whatever. Um, so I think that's sort of where um, Bukele's popularity comes from. He has this really uh, excellent uh, expert ability to spin himself as um, this sort of antithesis of the previous, you know, quote unquote, corrupt political class, blah, blah, blah. And you were saying how he has um, clashed with the Biden administration and certainly the State Department under President Biden has accused his administration of consolidating power, of purging judges. Oh, I don't think they just accused him of that. I think it's pretty well known that he did purge the um, judiciary. Um, They've accused him of having ties to gangs. is the st- does the State Department actually have a point here about how Bukele is governing? If if that is all true, why isn't the State Department considering him an ally? Yeah, <laughs> certainly. Yeah, I mean, this is like like Bukele versus the IMF. You know, there are no good guys in this story, right? Like, you don't want to. Um, I, I think everyone's interests are are totally cynical here for the most part. Um, but it's certainly the case that. Uh, yeah, I mean, Bukele has has overseen a total dismantling of the the like minimum bare bones uh, democratic infrastructure that the country had been able to to achieve since the peace accords and also under the FMLN because to their credit they also did the FMLN in power did quite a lot in terms of advancing like access to public information and creating sort of like basic like human rights um, and and, tr- and government transparency frameworks in the country. Um, so I, I think. Basically, all of the accusations at the State Department levels against the Bukele administration are certainly true. I mean, they have purged the judiciary. They did, you know, just totally sack the entire Supreme Court and put in a new attorney general. Um, they have totally remilitarized politics in a really disturbing way. And, and they're just incredibly corrupt and in a really sort of brazen way that's that's troubling in the sense that it's like, it's not the kind of corruption, your run-of-the-mill corruption, where... Uh, it's the kind of corruption that's so brazen and blatant that it's like, oh, these guys really think they're going to be in power forever, you know, because there's no sort of going back. It's like there's no exit strategy here. There's no post game plan. Bukele doesn't have international allies to speak of. He doesn't have um, he doesn't really seem to have any strategy besides um just railroading the constitution to get himself reelected and staying in power forever. But it still seems like he's quite popular according to opinion polls, even though the the same opinion polls show widespread dissatisfaction with the Bitcoin law. That's right. That's right. And I think that speaks to a number of things, but among them, uh, the weakness of the Salvadoran left in particular to sort of regroup and, and provide a viable alternative. I mean, Bukele's done quite a lot to delegitimize uh not just not just the existing uh opposition parties but sort of like politics in general that's this whole sort of anti-politics you know discourse he's an outsider like politics is dirty um and so i i think that's that's certainly the case i will say that you know since uh september when the bitcoin law was implemented um we have seen this sort of explosion of, a, of something like a protest movement that was 
unthinkable um, just even months before. And, and, and I think that's encouraging, but um, you know, these are, these are uh, organizations um, that uh, still have a long way to go in terms of like penetrating the, the broader population. I think what Bukele has been best at is, is this um, setting expectations. And, and I think that's why you see these sort of like apparent contradictions in the polls. Like people agree, yeah, things are not good. You know, my household economy is, is the same or worse than it was, you know, two years ago. And yet there's this notion that Bukele is in power working to make things better. And like at some point, you know, we're gonna see the fruits of all this effort. And I think what part of the question is, you know, at what point will people, uh, just have to kind of give up on that ghost, but also what kind of alternative can the left actually, you know, provide? Bukele seemed to have picked one of the worst times in recent history to like pass this law for Bitcoin. The price of Bitcoin has swung so wildly over the last like seven months, 50% swings up and down. It, I mean, for the people who actually, you know, adopt, you know, took it to heart and started investing in Bitcoin, they, I mean, I guess maybe it's about back to where it was back in September, but they probably rode the wave and probably bought more at the top and then have seen it go down. It's probably caused a lot of people a lot of strife. Well, and if you believe Bukele, which who knows, right? But if you believe what the president says, uh, the government of El Salvador bought uh, a ton of Bitcoin when it was at a tight, right? And so, so the state itself has actually lost you know, millions and millions of dollars. Who knows if that's true because there's no way to verify his claims. He just tweets, you know, that, that he's purchased um, Bitcoin. But yeah, not, not only that, but I mean, I think broader, broadly speaking, like internationally, there's a, a move to, to start regulating crypto, right? Um, and, and we've seen, you know, China run the crypto bros out of their country. Um, you know, you saw the mining move to, to Kazakhstan, et cetera. And, and you know, Bukele is trying to sort of spin uh, this new Bitcoin city project um, and, and volcano mining or whatever uh, as like, you know, oh, you know, Kazakhstan's unstable, like come to El Salvador. To begin with, El Salvador <laughs> under Bukele has been anything but stable, but also like, you know, the country doesn't have any of the objective conditions that you would look for uh, as a site of, of Bitcoin mining, right? It's it's hot, it's tropical, so it's it's expensive, you know, just to to cool the machines and maintain the, the sort of climatized environment that you want, right, for Bitcoin mining. But also, you know, energy is extremely expensive. Like El Salvador doesn't even routinely meet its own domestic energy needs with its domestic production, right? It has to import energy from Guatemala and from elsewhere. I mean, it's just... There's, yeah, there's a lot, uh, a lot of holes, I think, in these arguments. And it could likely end up, it sounds like it could end up like um, Honduras, uh, at least, you know, before the most recent election or Honduras from like 2009 until very recently where, um, you know, the government was claiming that it was trying to boost domestic energy production and it was really just sort of trying to open up the country to foreign capital. And then when various people were protesting the land use, like, say, Berta Cáceres, you would have death squads come in and kill people. Right. And, and El Salvador is a much smaller territory. It's much more densely populated. Like the notion that you can just clear out the whole area around the Conchagua volcano and, and put in this 
like you know private charter city which is also pioneered in Honduras um, is is insane I mean it, it's going to be it's going to be really really ugly for folks and actually the government just like updated its eminent domain laws to be able to do just that mm. um, so yeah it, it's certainly troubling so Honduras has a left-wing government now is there any hope of um the left sort of coalescing around any one figure or set of principles in El Salvador? Is there, you know, you, you mentioned how the there was protest, there were protests against the Bitcoin law. Um, you, you know, what kind of hope is there that the left will fight what, back? What does, yeah, what, what does the opposition to, I mean, you mentioned the left is, is hasn't been effective at, at, at sort of um, clarifying a position on Bukele, uh, but what does the opposition to Bukele look like? Where is it coming from? Right. Well, I think part of what complicates uh, the, this question is that the opposition to Bukele actually runs the gamut across the political spectrum. Bukele has made enemies not just of the left, but also of the traditional like right wing um, oligarchy. Not all of it. Some folks have swung behind Bukele. Um, but for the most part, like big Salvadoran capital and like the traditional right wing party um, that was, you know, previously like favored by the United States and I think still is today is uh, is very much against naive. Uh, and obviously you have a, a left opposition uh, comprised not just of, of what remains of the FMLN as a political party, but like that social movement base that has historically um, really sort of uh, been the 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 strength right of, of the left in the country um and that's been that's been a real point of tension and and contradiction i think in the mobilizations the mobilizations against bukele have been called by the left like these are left social movement groups that are calling people into the streets and sort of like setting the pace right um and and, and the agenda for for the opposition in the streets um, but there has been participation and support from uh, right wing sectors and even like, you know, it, it is true that like there are elements like in the State Department that are against Bukele and would, would certainly rather see um, definitely not the FMLN back in power, but I, I think they'd be happy to see a return to the, the previous uh, sort of more stable right wing status quo. Right. Um, and so that's that's a real challenge because. Um, you know, it's, it's just sort of a matter of, of, of strength, right? I think at this point, um, you know, were Bukele to fall tomorrow, which is certainly not going to happen, uh, but I think the right wing would be better positioned, right, to take advantage of, of any vacuum. And I think that's, it's a real concern because if, if y'all remember, like, the, um, the big protests, anti-government protests in Guatemala in, like, 2015 um, were these sort of, like, broad spectrum, um, you know, sort of, like, pseudo non-ideological protests to just topple the president and they they succeeded but uh, you know what happened afterwards well, the right stepped right back in and you have basically like military rule in guatemala right now um and that's uh that's a, a real concern uh in terms of sort of the the tone of of the the opposition to bukele you know are you just um are you just a protesting to restore the quote unquote rule of law and this like reactionary constitution that was written in 1983 in the middle of the civil war? Or are you, um, you know, pushing for the, the refoundation of the state, right? Which was sort of like the broad popular movement demand in Honduras after the coup. Um, but that's, it's a, it's a question of, of time and struggle, right? We'll have to sort of see where things go. And the price of Bitcoin. 
<laughs> and the price of Bitcoin. Well, Hillary, this has been uh, really fascinating, and and thank you very much for explaining a lot of this to us. I guess I have uh, one final question before we wrap up. Has Bukele blocked you yet on Twitter? No, unfortunately, I'm still subjected to all of his antics. <laughs> well, you can follow Hillary on Twitter at Hillary Goodfriend. That's Hillary with one L and Goodfriend with no D. Um, even though Hillary's last name is Goodfriend with a D, I'm guessing that was already taken on Twitter. Um, and it was just too long. Ah, too long. Okay. And Hillary is a doctoral student in Latin American studies at UNAM in Mexico City. And you can find her writing in NACLA and Jacobin in both English and Spanish. And she writes about El Salvador, imperialism, migration, and labor. Uh, anything you want to plug right now, Hillary? Anything you're working on that we should be on the lookout for? Uh, no, right now I'm just trying to graduate from my <laughs> program. So yeah. thanks a lot, you guys. I really appreciate the time. Well, thanks yeah, for thank coming you. on and uh, good luck completing your studies. Thanks a lot.